Welcome, you happy warrior. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. You heroic men, enduring the scorching days of summer and the frigid days of winter, going to work early every morning, regardless of whether you feel like it, disciplining yourself and improving yourself, watching over your spouse and children if you're fortunate enough to have them, and taking care of business, generating cash flow, and doing what your head tells you to do when your head tells you it must be done. You men who ignore your heart's desire to indulge the body's seductive whisper, instead you boldly heed the clarion call of responsibility to those you are strong enough to support and brave enough to care for. Yes, you are the army of the righteous. You are the noble knights defending the fragile fortress of civilization against those hungry hordes of scheming and surging savages trying to invade and conquer what you and your fathers have built. Those barbarians know that even after they destroy the civilization you built, as they wretchedly crawl through its wrecked ruins, they will still live better than in anything they could ever have built themselves. Only you stand between the nightmare of socialistic slavery and the bright hope of tomorrow. And you beautiful and brave women, resisting government's treacherous proposal to marry it rather than accepting a golden ring from one clear-eyed man dreaming of a shared tomorrow, you gorgeous and courageous women who smilingly and graciously carry the load of work, marriage, and family, inspiring your man to greatness and nurturing your young ones to moral maturity as well as physical. Yes, you men and women, you happy warriors who do all this and have done all this, yes, you are the natural audience of this, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. You are the audience I devotedly serve, recognizing that every day that I can bring you the helpful, life-affirming insights of ancient Jewish wisdom, well, that's another day of privilege for me, because you are not a tennis ball floating down the gutter of life. You have your hand on the steering wheel of your life. As William Ernest Henley's great poem Invictus ends, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. Because you are not tennis balls floating down the gutter of life, it's indeed my honor to serve you all, and my delight to welcome you to another episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Yes, that's right. This is the only show in the entire digital universe that reveals how the world really works. This is the only show in the world which offers you calisthenics for the contemplative and strenuous stretching for the soul. I will stand beside you as you attempt speculative somersaults of the spirit. This 
is how the world really works. Pioneers don't always benefit. Pioneers don't always score. You think about the invention of the sewing machine, which you know did so much to change life in the world. The sewing machine was invented by who? Well, I know many of you are going to say, well, by a man called Singer, because who hasn't heard of a Singer sewing machine? But as a matter of fact, Singer doesn't show up until comparatively late, 1850, 1860, somewhere there. But prior to that, a guy called Fisher in England and a guy called Elias Ho in America, uh, these guys were working on this problem of how do you make a machine sew? And they had already broken through to this basic idea you have two separate supplies of cotton, one beneath and one above. And the needle has to come down and form a loop. And then a sort of moving shuttle slides the cotton through that loop, uh, creating what's called in our sewing world a lock stitch. And then eventually, after that, a guy called Isaac Merritt Singer shows up. And using the ideas of Fisher and Howe, manages to put together a working machine that is attractive and looks like the like the early ones we've seen pictures of and there it is uh, past the middle of the 19th century and singer is the one who becomes a multi-millionaire on the sewing machine that he didn't even actually invent himself and uh, this is not uh, an unusual thing early 20th century 1910 or thereabouts um, a guy starts figuring out how to make um, a vacuum cleaner. Right. Makes a vacuum cleaner. And um, struggles and designs and refines and fixes it up. And uh, turns out then that a cousin of his buys one. Her husband looks at it and says, Aha! And he immediately starts the uh, vacuum cleaner company. I think it was the Hoover Vacuum Cleaner Company, actually. And uh, he acquired the, the rights from his uh, wife's um, cousin. And uh, he didn't make a fortune, but the guy, Hoover, the, the uh, husband who bought it, he did. He didn't pioneer it. He didn't come up with the idea, but he did very well on it um you remember blackberry you remember them i used to have a blackberry years ago um it was really one of the very early smartphones and the great thing was it had a beautiful little physical keyboard it was fantastic and it also offered a uh, a very secure communication system because everything went through blackberry and it uh, was very very uh, cleverly designed and um didn't work. They're not, they're not around in that form anymore because people who started producing uh, phones without any keyboards, without any physical keyboard like Apple and Samsung and many others, um, they are the ones that made the fortunes and are still making the fortunes. I think BlackBerry may possibly, I'm not absolutely sure of this, if whether they're even in business anymore. 
But uh, this is a very common pattern. It's really something we should all be aware of because very often I get consulted by people who say, I've got this great idea. I've just come up with this thing that is going to do that or this service or that. Well, one's got to be very careful in that one may well do better figuring out a way to implement or find a better use or a better way of marketing something that exists. Um, Amazon didn't start, didn't pioneer selling books online. I think the company was called books.com. They actually did it. Uh, Google didn't even come up with the, um, with the, uh, the, the search engine first. There were other companies that did that. You remember a company called Alta Vista? <laughs> that was an early search engine. Um, Facebook didn't pioneer the, that concept. It was originally a, a firm called MySpace. So very often, uh, the, the big bucks come not from desperately trying to pioneer a new concept as much as from trying to find a better way to apply something that is out there, finding a way to sell it in a better way or use it in a different way. And these are very useful things to bear in mind. Just happens to be how the world really works. The first person who designs something isn't always the one and seldom is actually the one to financially benefit from it. Um, being an inventor is like being an artist. Being a business professional is something else entirely. You don't fall in love with the thing you're thinking about. It is a commodity. If it, you want to make it as useful as possible and you want to get it into the hands of as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. But very often the pioneer is excited about his invention and he's figuring out how to polish up the invention and improve the invention. When in reality, what should be happening is patents should be taken out, a, a company should be formed to market it, and then in due course, um, it gets improved. New versions get put out. But uh, think more like a business professional and less like an artist, less like a pioneer. Uh, and that is one of the ways in which the world really works. And I mention this now because I am preparing this show for you at a time when the American presidential election of November 2020 is in considerable doubt and is surrounded by turbulence and confusion. And uh, there are a lot of people who tell me, I, I can't focus on my work. I can't think about anything except what's going on. Look, I don't dispute the very high stakes of this election. I don't dispute that at all. But in the final analysis, right now, what is going to bring you more immediate benefit? Strengthening your business, making sure your family's bonds are tight and strong, making sure you keep your body healthy, making sure you remain connected to God, making sure your friendships remain to the, to the extent they can, given that so many friendships have been impacted by the uh, growing cultural chasm that has been a part of American civil life 
since the Obama administration, I would say, I think that is when it took a real turn downwards. Uh, there is no question. Anybody who studies these things will discover it for themselves. There's no question that um, no president in recent times has done more to fester divisiveness in America than Barack Obama. Uh, no president has done more to drive a wedge between people who have different skin colors and people who have different amounts of money in the bank and uh, people who are of one gender or the second. Nobody in recent years has done more to fester discontent and malevolence and unhappiness um, between people than that particular president. And it's, uh, it's reached heights now previously undreamed of. It has impacted friendships. But at this time, uh, if it's a choice between sitting and gazing hour after hour at election returns and reading reports of lawsuits that are filed. Look, all of these things are, are real, and the impact they'll have on our society is, is, is true and real and strong and powerful. Uh, whichever way it goes, uh, the consequence will be two completely different and incompatible visions for America. And uh, many people, it's extraordinary but about half the country apparently wanted to go one way, and about half the country hope that it will go the other way. But you're not going to be able to impact this by sitting around watching the news. This is a time to focus on your finances, on your friendships, on your faith, on your family. Yes, on your fitness as well. The 5F renewal project lies at the heart of what it means to be a happy warrior. Now, maybe you've decided that in order to further your finances, you need to find a job, maybe you need to change jobs, and you're going to be looking at advertisements, you're going to be looking at uh, uh, people wanted ads, you're going to be looking online, and let us imagine for the moment that you find the following two advertisements and both of them catch your eye because both of them are looking for somebody like you. Let us imagine for the moment that you are in the dignified and noble profession of sales. Yeah, you're a sales professional. And uh, one of the ads reads, we're looking for somebody to become part of our team. We think of ourselves like a family. We behave ethically towards our employees and towards our customers. We act in a way filled with compassion. Our workplace is a place of compassion. And our practices towards our employees are always fair. For interview send resume to this email address. That's one of the ads catches your eye, and it looks pretty nice. That sounds as if it would be a really nice place to work, doesn't it? And uh, then your eye is caught by another ad. And this one says, we're looking for top-performing sales professionals 
who are confident in their ability. Your compensation will be strictly in proportion to your achievements with no limit at all. Promotions and remuneration will be based entirely on your financial performance in this company. For interview, send resume to this email address. And I ask you now to think which of these companies, which of these two opportunities do you find more appealing? Which one is going to have you sending off a resume first, eagerly anticipating an early response and a quick interview? Which one really gets to you? And I know that for some people listening, for some people listening, you are saying to yourself, you know, my current job is like a jungle. The pressure is so high. It is so difficult. I I dread going to work in the morning. I'm going to apply to this job that says we are an ethical company. We treat our employees ethically and we treat everyone with compassion. We are fair to everybody we interact with. And you think to yourself, hey, to work in a place that is filled with compassion, a place that it practices fairness to all, a place that is ethical, this sounds wonderful. That's where I'm headed. But uh, before you quickly shoot your resume off to that place, let me tell you that uh, while I was a student, I uh, accepted, oh, I applied and I, I, uh, I tried to get a job selling encyclopedias door to door. Now, you're probably laughing at me. And to tell you the truth, I don't even know if there are companies that still do door-to-door sales because this was before the year 2000 when the internet took off and uh, the internet was unknown and people were not buying things online. And so I simply don't know about the current situation, but it's irrelevant. What I want to tell you about is that uh, I was brought into a big room after I'd filled out my application and had a brief interview with somebody brought into a big room and they said, okay, everybody, uh, you are the ones who've passed the first interview process. And sure enough, there were a few people I had met earlier on in the waiting room areas that I did not see in this room. And uh, there were people in the room I hadn't seen before, but we all sort of nervously glanced around at one another. We took our seats and uh, the manager started talking and he said, "Uh, this is how it works. Uh, This is the commission structure. Uh, You will be be given an area and a district to work in. You'll work in every evening from six to nine and then you'll be picked up and taken back to our uh, central drop-off point, and uh, your sales manager will work with you, etc., etc. And then he finally came in and he said, now uh, we come to the point where you may all select your remuneration package. I'm going to describe remuneration package A, and I'm going to describe your remuneration package B. You are free to choose whichever one you want. And remuneration package A, he went on to explain, 
um, was a, a base salary. I'm just throwing out numbers here to just give you an idea. I obviously do not remember what they actually were. But um, to give you an idea, he said something like this. He said the remuneration package uh, starts off with a base. This is uh, package A. Starts off with a base salary of uh, $100 a week. And you also will make $50 on every set of encyclopedias that you sell. And, you know, everybody's mind starts working. The wheels are turning. We're all doing our mental arithmetic. And so, okay, I get $100 guaranteed. So, you know, uh, can I pay my rent? All right, fine. That's all set. And then I make a commission of $50, uh, I think is what I said, for every set of encyclopedias sold. Okay, that's very interesting. Then he went on and said, now, uh, package B, remuneration package B, is there is no base salary. Uh, you get nothing at all, but you get $200 uh, commission for every uh, encyclopedia set you sell. So I'm thinking to myself, because he says, now everybody is, uh, in a few minutes, you've got to think about it. Uh, if anyone, you know, you need to make notes, go ahead. But then I'm going to be going around and I'm going to be asking each of you for decision what you want to do, compensation package A or compensation package B. And... Um, you know, and he started going around the room, and I'd say roughly uh, every third person, roughly one in three, took package B. Uh, two out of three went for A, the, the base salary of 100 plus a smaller commission on each set. And uh, about one in three, maybe one in four, took package B. And going around the room, coming towards me, I'm thinking to myself, you know what? Um, I've got just this one short summer vacation. It was not a long summer vacation like we're, we know now in America. Uh, this was in Europe. And um, I've got to make something reliably. I can't go through uh, several weeks making nothing. So I'd better take the safe package A where I, I, the potential is lower, but at least I know I'm going to be getting something. And um, he's getting closer and closer to me. And he was really just a few people away from me when all of a sudden uh, I had this tremendously, um, it, it was like a blazing beacon of incandescent lit up in my mind. And I had this epiphanous moment and I said, wait a sec, if they pay me, I'm saying, hey, if I can't sell, at least I'll make $100 a week. But if I don't sell, they're not going to keep paying me $100 a week. Uh, for sure, that makes no sense. Either I can or I can't. If I can't, I'm not going to be any good at this job. If I can, I'll do much better. And just then he got to me and he said, uh, Lappin, A or B for you? And I said, I'm taking B. I'm taking the commission only. And, uh, and he, he put me down on the list as a commission and then uh, for package B. And then he said, okay, uh, everybody who chose A, uh, you'll be going through that door into that room over there. And he pointed across. And then he said, and you folks who've gone with B, you wait right here with me. And in that instant, I realized that everybody who had selected A and was being sent into that other room <laughs> was being let go. They were not being given any anything remotely approaching a job with a hundred dollars a week fixed fixed uh, salary that was just a ploy they just wanted to make sure they only hired the people who were confident at uh, their abilities and it was a very interesting hiring technique because uh, um, during the the next six weeks or so that i i spend doing this 
um, not only did I learn an enormous amount, but I saw that they were absolutely right. For the most part, everybody that made it into the B group, everyone who selected the B group, actually did very well indeed at this. And uh, and we all learned a lot, and I certainly look back on it with uh, appreciation. It was valuable. But um, it also was a reminder to me, don't always go with your gut, right? Your gut isn't always right. And don't always jump at the first thing that seems logical and the first thing that seems appealing. It's always a good reminder to me. So so it is, I tell you, that if you have this offer now, uh, the company says, we're looking for somebody who wants to be part of our family and who will appreciate working in an ethical environment filled with compassion and appreciation for the way we treat one another with fairness. And you're ready to go there. And I understand it because the place you're working at now is is hard. Or, you know, the place where a friend of yours is working. And early morning tonight, it's not easy. And here's a place that really sounds appealing. But remember the story of the encyclopedia sales. And here's what happens you do take a job there and um, you know what happens after a little while uh, somebody gets promoted and after a little while uh, somebody else is given an expanded sales area and um, the person who was given an expanded sales area is a racial minority and the person who was given a promotion was a woman and an attractive woman at that. So, And you're starting to think to yourself, how come I'm not seeing any fairness and any compassion? What about me? And you start wondering, how are these decisions being made? And time goes by and you see you're you know you're you're getting crumbs but other people are being treated very differently and you start saying to yourself hey i i mean i know they said this is going to be a compassionate workplace but maybe being compassionate to one person is being cruel to another and maybe i'm on the wrong end i don't know why um and how about the ethics like on what basis like whose ethics are they and you just aren't happy with what's going on compassion really fairness who defines how fairness is applied and you know what you quit and you go back to the other company whose advertisement you saw and you walk in there and the uh, interviewer is the sales manager who looks at you in the eye and says can you sell and you say, yes, I can, and I would like the opportunity to show you. And uh, he says, do you know anything about our company? You say, yes, I've done my homework. I know a great deal about your company. And uh, you proceed to tell him. And he says, all right, I'm going to give you a chance. And you look around the, the room, the other people you meet there, and, um, and you see some people are making a lot of money, some people are making a little less money, but yet everybody seems to get on okay. Whereas in the place you left, there's people were looking suspiciously at one another and there was a surliness 
and people were whiny and grumpy and grumbly. But here, everybody's open, everybody smiles, and what's more, there's even a degree of helpfulness. People uh, help one another. And you say to yourself, I totally misunderstood this. When people are measured by financial performance, it's absolutely clear. We get how it's done. And so I understand why that woman got a promotion. And I understand why this person is making more commission than I am. And I understand why I'm making more than this other person. It's all very straightforward. And it's based on my own ability and my own hard work and my own skills and my diligence and my dedication. Fantastic. And the, the relationships are better. And that is a really important thing to understand. A market economy, a place where voluntary and free transactions are conducted between free human beings acting within a framework of freedom, that produces a warmer, friendlier, well, just let's call it a nicer working environment than an environment where things are apportioned on vague ideas like uh, ethics. People say, well, you know, ethics isn't vague. Of course it's vague. The word ethics is meaningless if you don't append to it the system of ethics that is being used. There are different ethical systems, and there are different groups of people on the planet who practice different systems of ethics. Uh, moral. Moral is meaningless. You know what? We're a moral workplace, and we want you to be a moral person. What is that supposed to mean? If you don't tell me the system of morality, the framework of morality, I don't know what to do. <laughs> moral is exactly what you define it to be. Well, that doesn't help me very much because we all operate best in an atmosphere of transparency and clarity. And that's what a money-based system achieves and gives us and it's ultimately a wonderful and very positive thing but there are still people who are convinced that uh, words like compassion and ethics and morality and fairness are much more important than things like money and the, the, the reality is that it's exactly the opposite, that you use words in the pursuit of something beautiful and appealing, such as imagine a workplace where everything is based on ethics and everybody is moral and the managers manage compassionately and uh, the company owners are fair and you think to yourself, yes, how lovely that would be. And like every socialist paradise, it turns into a living hell. But places that operate on contractual understandings based on financial considerations produce far more reliable and even far more comfortable relationships. Um, you know, one of the uh, rules that I teach in programs we do on marriage, the family part 
of the five F's of family, friendships, faith, finances, and fitness, the family part, I point out that unfortunately today, many people assume that the way to bring about a marriage is for a man and a woman to fall in love with one another, and then their friends and their parents say to them, well, do you really, really love him? Or does she really love you? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Great, wedding bells are ready to ring. And um, and then there's a better way of getting married, which is to talk about it from day one. Uh, I'm not dating recreationally. I'm dating purposefully. And I'm not even dating, I'm courting. And so I'd like to go with you, not to a movie where we both silently watch a show, but I'd like to go with you for coffee or to a meal so we can talk and we can discuss whether we have a similar view of what family life is going to be like, what we want it to be. And uh, and then the the marriage is clear it's based on very clear matters including financial expectations and this is why a jewish wedding is a wedding that is based on a document called a ketubah a marriage contract is what it is literally a contract with signatures and everything and the the point i make which has considerable validity to it i believe is that marriages that start with love, with sentiments, with undefined things. How much does he love you? That much. <laughs> what, a ton? Seven yards? 24 centimeters? What are we talking about? Marriages that start with undefined things like love often end up with lawyers and legalities. But marriages that start off with legalities, namely a contract, very often continue onwards forever in love. It's worthwhile being aware of that and uh, understanding that money is a means of bringing peace and compatibility between people. Monetary arrangements make for clarity and they allow friendships to grow. Whereas when human relations are governed strictly on the basis of sentimental words, none of which have any objective definition, all that does is leave the portal wide open for tyranny to come marching in and does it ever do so now there's a uh, a name a word i'm going to use for people who have a sneering contempt for monetary arrangements but uh, who um, much prefer words like Hope and change. Does that ring a bell? Anybody remember the slogan of Barack Obama back in 2008? Hope and change. Very appealing. And uh, obviously a lot of people fell for that. And there's a word, as I say, a name for people 
who are more comfortable with things like fairness, compassion, equality, and considerably less comfortable with the idea of financial measurements, the, the morality of the marketplace, if you like, the idea that money and financial contracts make for better interpersonal relationships than, than those relationships that are governed by loose sentiments, like, let's just agree we're going to be fair with one another. Or some of you might remember an early slogan of the Google company when it was early in its uh, history, uh, and I think it was something like, just do no evil. Okay, well, very beautiful. I, I, I got to think of how many people uh, applied for jobs working at Google, and they probably haven't done it at all, by the way, but they applied for jobs at Google on the basis of, you know what, any company that has as its mission statement, do no evil, that's wonderful. The only problem, my friends, you know already, the problem is who is going to define what is evil? <laughs> These things really have to be thought about very, very carefully before you jump at things that sound warm and fuzzy. I said I have a name for people who go that avenue, and the, the name is Socialist. Now, it might be an incipient socialist, somebody who's on their way, they're not fully there. It might be a fully hardcore socialist all the way. But people who have a visceral dislike for a monetarily uh, shaped society, a society where our relationships are financially and contractually bound, which is, if you think about it, a, a very... Uh, true and traditional way that America operated from the time that the pilgrims abandoned their experiment in kibbutz living like early Israel, when the pilgrims abandoned their sort of communitarian idea and, uh, and switched farm production to every family for itself, and the pattern of incredible economic growth started then and ran, I'd say, until about early 60s, say 1962. And you think about what happened in that period, okay, from, uh, from the 1600s, the early 1600s, up from that point, the overwhelming majority of people on this planet lived very hard, short lives. It was very common for a woman to say, um, I've had seven children, four of them survived. For young children to die in their first few years of life was common. People were hungry. People were cold. That's how it was. And then things launch in America. And similarly, in parts of Europe and in the United Kingdom, uh, things happen. What happens is that governments start pulling back. They start restraining their excess power, and they grant a certain freedom to people to do things, to innovate things, to try to better themselves, and to enjoy the fruits of their labors. And so things take off. 
and within a short few hundred years, short in the scale of several millennia of human history, in a few short years, lifespan is increased, health is increased, people have choice in food and clothing, and all of a sudden, I mean, health, everything is better. Brought about, and here's the question you have to ask yourself, brought about by more government or less government? Brought about by less government. Brought about chiefly by government or chiefly by free human beings forming free associations, uh, including those we call corporations, companies. And again, if you are going to be honest about this, you'd have to concede that, yes, this wonderful period of economic expansion where human happiness, where human health, where lifespan, uh, where misery diminished, all of this happens at a time when governments pull back, granting more freedom to citizens, not more equality, but more freedom, because you have to choose. If you want equality, then it cannot be accomplished with freedom. If you want freedom, there will be inequality. That's how it works. You've got to choose. And uh, people realized this is extraordinary. What an amazing period of time produced by freedom in which freedom allowed people to interact with one another by means of financial arrangements. Nobody spoke about fairness, compassion, ethics. These were not the languages spoken. And yet, it bettered the lives of people, bettered the lives of people, and it produced a, uh, a, a good civic environment. It produced a time where people had better relationships than they do today. Now, I, I follow a number of countries, and at different times I follow different countries, but three countries that are relatively easy for me to follow cultural, social, political, religious trends, uh, United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. I suppose largely because of uh, language familiarity and uh, a certain amount of other familiarity as well. And one of the things that is clear is that in the last, say from 1962 to now, the percentage of the population that thinks socialistically, the percentage of the population that is distrustful of private business and believes that the only way that we can tolerate uh, private business and capitalistic enterprises to exist is with rigorous and diligent government supervision, regulation, and restriction. Under those conditions, perhaps we can have a little bit of private enterprise. That's the socialistic way of thinking, because all good comes from the community, and that's why socialism produces vague occupations like community activist. I, I keep seeing people described as community activists. Could somebody tell me, where do I go to apply for a job as a community activist? And who are the human beings that I am pleasing? What am I doing as a... Well, socialism produces community activists. 
There was no job description community activist 60 years ago. There was no such thing. And our communities, I think everyone will concede, were in better shape than they are now. And so socialism gets launched in the early 60s, subtly at first. Nobody uses the word, and there's no evil genius pulling the levers behind the curtain, forcing people to be... No, it's not like that. My friends, here is perhaps the most important sentence in today's show. Socialism is the inevitable economic outcome of secularism. Now, some of you aren't going to like that. You're not going to be happy. But I implore you, do not eject it with cognitive dissonance. Consider the possibility that I speak the truth. And that is that good, decent, well-intentioned people who toss God out of their world become socialists. They may not call themselves that. They may not say, I'm an incipient communist. No, they speak in terms of, I care about the people who don't have it so good. I have compassion. I'm a caring person. I'm an ethical person. And that's why it is that people who lean left tend to have a very high moral opinion of themselves and conversely, a very low moral opinion of their political opponents. It's not any longer that both sides want what is best for America. No, the whole question of America and what is best for America is up for grabs because there are two different incompatible visions and they revolve around this understanding of money. You see, it's very interesting, but um, the left, the world of socialism, the world that has a contempt for finance and for money and has a lofty and uh, disdainful attitude towards wealth, well, that group of people are extraordinarily tolerant of any sexual liaison that is um, voluntary and that is uh, consensual. And so when I say consensual, adultery today is, is perfectly acceptable. I've known of situations where a man shows up at a dinner party with a woman who's not his wife. And he, other than in certain countries like France, he doesn't actually say, I want to introduce you to my mistress. He says, uh, my wife couldn't come, you know, please meet Charlotte. She's here with me tonight. And those in the know know that uh, they are um, having an affair. That's how it is. And this is all acceptable. And everybody says it's fine because she and he are both consensual in this relationship. But nobody asks whether the third party in the relationship, namely the betrayed wife, also is consensual. Does she also say, yep, this is fine? Probably not, because her life is about to be turned upside down. But that doesn't matter. Any form of sexual liaison is acceptable to the left, as long as it is consensual. But now, if we speak about a financial liaison that is consensual, all of a sudden, the left has no problem regulating it 
and restraining it and controlling it and making sure it's in compliance. That's right. It's extraordinary. If you and I make an arrangement that you can use your cell phone to call me and I'll come in my car and pick you up and take you where you want to go, what a great idea that is. But the left doesn't say, well, you know what? The uh, I, the the car owner is consensual. The user is consensual. Hey, let them be, just like we do with sexual relationships. As long as they are both consent- consenting, they can do whatever they like. So how come you and I can't do whatever we like financially, as long as we both agree? You know, I want to um, I want to have my uh, non-existent hair done by you. But wait, you now have to make the government happy that you have a license to cut my hair. But wait, I don't care about that. You, I'm happy to have you cut my hair right now. You're happy to do it. We agree on a price. And the government steps in and says, not so fast. You're not able to do it. This is a general pattern of uh, socialism, the left. And that is that anything that two people want to do sexually is absolutely fine. Anything that two people want to do economically needs to be looked at and checked and possibly regulated. That's how they work. There is an intuitive distrust and unhappiness with money. One of the reasons is, remember I told you that the most important sentence today is that socialism is the inevitable and natural and logical accompaniment to a secular worldview. Well, that's right, because a secular worldview claims that we are here because of a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution that turned primitive protoplasm into bookkeepers and ballerinas, and it's a totally accidental process, and therefore that means that we are nothing but sophisticated animals. And have you ever heard of any animal that uses money? Of course not. There's no such thing. And so what are people doing with this? It's obviously a way of some people to uh, exploit other people. This is not a good thing. Animals don't do it. People shouldn't do it. But when it comes to sexual behavior, hey, animals do it, right? And so should people. And that's one of the reasons that the left has tried to turn public schools into government indoctrination camps, where one of the things they can indoctrinate young students with is to get rid of the modesty they learned in their parents' homes and replace it with barnyard morality. That's one of the things, because it reassures them that there is no God and that we are all secular beings. That's how it works. Now, in Canada and in the United States and in Great Britain, over the last 50 or 60 years, a growing number of people are becoming socialistically inclined, leaning towards that hard left position. Some people say becoming leftists, but uh, I believe in, uh, in being direct with words, and uh, that really means being socialists. And you can see You can watch and see the percentage that socialists gain in every election. And you see that, you know, with not 
notwithstanding minor upticks and downticks, in general, the trend is towards socialism. That is what's happening. You see it in Canada very clearly. You see it in America. Uh, an out-and-out socialist like Bernie Sanders comes very close to representing about half the population. Really, he does. It's incredible. Uh, people like Elizabeth Warren, people like Kamala Harris, people who really are socialists. And half the population is now comfortable with that. Uh, you think how close Jeremy Corbyn of the Labour Party in, in uh, the United Kingdom came to power. Uh, it didn't work in the end for a variety of reasons, but essentially a large proportion of the population was willing to go with a socialist. That's how it is. And the reason is very simple. The reason is because something that started happening in the early 60s was the secularizing of America. Uh, moving God out of the village square into the home. And that was what people used to say. Hey, nobody's anti-God here. Nobody's anti-religion. Nobody's anti-Christian. It's just that there's no place for it in the public square because everybody knows the Constitution erects a wall of separation between church and state, which it doesn't, by the way. But uh, everybody believes that it does. And so as soon as a religion and Christianity was moved out of the public square and into the home, well, its role in the real life of people began to diminish. And above all, uh, the, the institutions of education, both K through 12, and then even more compellingly, at the college and university level, made the central theme of their educational philosophy to be secularism. That is exactly what they did. Now, I'm not going to take the time to speak about the Frankfurter Group and uh, Dewey and who are all these people who brought about secularism in uh, American education, in Canadian education, in British education. Uh, suffice it to say for the moment that it did happen. And, and you can see it as you, as you read uh, the material of those decades. You can watch it taking place more and more. And what this means, and you need to be aware of this, because however you earn your living, as long as you are not a direct government employee, how you earn your living, and by the way, that is fewer and fewer Americans every year, and that would be true for other countries as well, because government has been expanding all the time. But however you earn your living, the preponderance of socialists in the population makes it harder for you to earn a living. It's not a good thing. And its impact is real because you are part of a society, you're part of a functioning community that operates by means of voluntary financial exchange. And now, when more and more people, potential customers of yours, potential employees, people are going to want a payroll check from you, 
more and more of these people are thinking socialistically, please realize that this has an impact and make sure you take it into account when you hire people, make sure you take it into account when you design products or services or you design your marketing programs, be aware. You want to know why it is that companies like Starbucks sell water and the water bottle says uh, so much of each purchase will go towards helping poor people or this good or that good and why you can pick up a brochure at Starbucks that tells you all the good things the company is doing. Why do they have to do that, right? Why can't they simply say, hey, we're a corporation and our job is to improve the financial well-being of the owners of our company, all the shareholders in our company. Now, the way that works best is if we take care of our customers and we take care of our employees. And that's what we do. So we're providing jobs for tens of thousands of people. And we're providing a place for people to come and sit and meet and talk and get free Wi-Fi. And we're providing drinks for people. And we're prov- all This is good. Why do they have to go further to prove their virtue? And they're not the only ones. You'll find companies all the time proclaiming their virtue. Why can't they just say, hey, we're a successful, profitable company. That means we're supplying goods and services that people really want. And it also means that uh, we are providing jobs for our workers and we're providing financial stability for our vendors. Hey, that's what we do. And it's a wonderful thing we do. Nobody can do that anymore. Companies now have to show that they're not just making money. No, there isn't such thing as just making money. Making money means you're doing something good. But you can't do that anymore because far too many people in the population are socialists and they have a deep sneering contempt for money and they have a loathing for corporations and for business. They love government. And so corporations realize that in order to survive, they've got to persuade these people that they're good. And so that's why it is in, a, in a, an example of extraordinary moral surrender, the business roundtable about a year ago um, came out with this shocking statement signed onto by many big names in American business. And the statement said, yes, it's true that in the bad old days yesterday, companies had only one responsibility, and that is their shareholders, right? The owners of a company. I mean, put yourself in that position, right? If you are the owner of a company, don't you want to make sure that company fulfills its need to you now the only way to do that is for your company to thrive the only way for it to thrive is to uh, please its customers and the only way you can keep pleasing your customers is if your employees are happy so this is a fantastic monetarily based system of keeping people happy making people happy adding to the sum of human happiness in the world but you can't do that anymore because too much of the population hates companies, hates business, hates money. And so you have to say, hey, 
the business roundtable stepped forward and said where there are many stakeholders today a corporation has to be answerable not just to its owners but to the environment and to its employees and to its neighborhood and to government and all of a sudden government now turns to companies to fulfill the unkept promises that politicians made in order to get elected that is where we're at i have to share with you if you'll pardon me i have to share with you a tweet i put up on twitter a few days ago here's what i said the reason socialism has always seduced low character people is that socialism provides them the moral framework that legitimizes them trying to live off the money earned by other people. It sanitizes theft and is not a political doctrine, but a sick pathology for diseased, larcenous egos. Larcenous means they like stealing. So that's what I wrote. The reason socialism has always seduced low-character people, what's more low-character than wanting to live off the sweat and blood of other people, right? The reason socialism has always seduced low-character people is that it provides them the moral framework that legitimizes them trying to live off the money earned by other people. It sanitizes theft and is not a political doctrine, but a sick pathology for diseased, larcenous egos. So uh, I got exactly the response I wanted, which was, um, uh, you know, many, many, many retweets and likes and so on. But the response I was waiting for came from somebody. I have absolutely no idea who they are. But here's what they wrote. Oh, they're, they're called Amazing Canadian something something. And uh, yeah, Canadian. Well, again, a lot of socialists there. But so he, in response to that tweet, writes, now describe landlords and capitalists that own businesses so he thinks he's slamming me um you know with this huge body slam onto the canvas he's shown me right because there i've said what socialists are they are people who use socialism to justify them living off the money earned and created by other people and he says well now describe landlords and capitalists that own businesses and so I responded, sure I will. Landlords and capitalists that own businesses are simply folks who've scrimped and saved to accumulate a few dollars, which they then put at risk in the hope of ultimately making a profit by starting a business that provides things that people want or by building units that renters can live in. What's so hard about that? I'm happy to describe landlords and capitalists that own businesses. Well, uh, that was the end of that conversation. But uh, it's important, I think, nonetheless, for you in your attempts to build your family, please know what your children are being taught at school and college. Please be aware they are being taught to grow up as socialists. And don't for a moment think it isn't a belief system. It is a belief system, and it is a belief system which is totally incompatible with both Judaism and Christianity. Simple as that. Be aware of that. Be aware of the people that you are marketing to, or the people who may be hiring you, or the people who are customers of yours. Please be aware that 
probably one in two of them are socialists. You've got to know that. Please be aware of those things. And uh, be aware that it is very, you know, people say, well, look, you know, friendship should be more important than politics. Uh, not really. Would you expect a friend to stay your friend if you announce one day to him that uh, you were having an affair? And you, what's more, you think there's nothing wrong with it. But just make sure your wife doesn't find out. You tell that to a friend. Your friend says, I'm not sure I can stay your friend anymore. Right? Perfectly understandable. Sure. Because you guys have incompatible moral visions. Please understand that politics is not like uh, um, basket weaving or embroidery uh, or quilting. You know, you have one approach. I have another approach. No, it's not like that. Today, politics is no more than the practical application of people's most deeply held values. And so, yes, I'm sorry to say it. I wish it weren't the case. But in the same way that I'm not likely to stay friends with somebody who's having an affair, I'm not likely to stay friends with somebody who is in the process of committing a fraud against his employer. I'm also not likely to stay friends with somebody who becomes a socialist. It's just not going to happen. And I totally understand that a socialist is not going to want to become or be friends with me. You may as well know that because that's the world we're living in today. It's a new world. It's about 60 years old. And the direction of the trend was clear and obvious, but it has taken the last few years since about 2008, to clarify the extent of the divide. People sometimes say, oh, you know, the divide is this, it's too divide. We need a president who can bring us together. I'm afraid that's child talk. <laughs> it's not, you can't, do you really think that if Planned Parenthood sat down with Pope, the former Pope Benedict XVI, all right, if Planned Parenthood sat down with, uh, with Pope Francis, you'll pardon me, um, I, I respect the Catholic Church, but he's not my Holy Father. So let me just say that if Planned Parenthood sat down with uh, Pope Francis, I wish I could be confident that they wouldn't come to an agreement. But I do know that if uh, Planned Parenthood sat down over coffee with uh, former Pope Benedict, I do know that no matter how long they sat, and how much coffee they drank, they will never, ever become good friends. They will never come to agreement. You can't when there is a fundamental disagreement over two incompatible beliefs. That's what you've got. And nice talk by Joe Biden or by anybody, not going to cut it. It's just not going to happen. You've got two incompatible belief systems, and that is a very deep canyon that cuts through the culture, not just in the United States of America, but elsewhere as well. So, my dear friends, thanks for being part of the show. Thank you for visiting my website at rabbidaniellappin.com, where you can read uh, back e episodes of Susan's Musings and Thought Tools and Ask the Rabbi, where you can contact us and where you can also go to the store section of the website 
and check into the Rabbi Daniel Lappin's recommended Bible. And you can also check into the reissue of a book which is stunning in its prescience, America's Real War. If you want a full and comprehensive insight of what I've been talking about, but delving more deeply and more extensively, then go to rabbidaniellappin.com and make you happy and make me happy by getting yourself either an ebook download or a paper book sent to you in the mail of America's Real War. You will learn so much and you will have so much of a better understanding of how to interact with those people you have to interact with in the world who are of a different belief system with, from you. You've really got to get them. You've got to understand what's going on. The fact is, you can't only do business with people who think like you. You can't only hire people who think like you. You can't only get uh, uh, looking for a job with only people who think. We're living in a complicated world, and you do need to understand secularism. You need to understand socialism. And that's what I meant about America's real war. Uh, the full title of the book is You Are In America's Real War, but it sort of got shortened to America's Real War. And uh, you'll find the book over at rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, it'll be eye-opening. It'll truly be eye-opening. You will think of it as one of your most important books, and you will keep it for reference as well, because it's becoming more and more relevant with each passing week as more and more people become more and more committed to the doctrine of socialism. Thanks for spreading the word on the podcast. Uh, I just recently saw some ratings of how we're doing on uh, the Apple uh, podcast system, and uh, it's fabulous. I can't believe it. So all of you who are helping to tell other folks about it, a person this week, two people next week, another person the following week, little by little, uh, the growth is exciting to me personally. I love it, and I appreciate all that you do. So until next week, when we get together again, I wish you a week of really good times with your family, with your friends, with your finances, with your faith, and with your physical fitness. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.